It's great to be here. I think I've, hopefully, we've got some really interesting and pertinent material to look at. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll see. I'll let you be the judge of that. I'm telling you what I'm hoping for. <clears throat> it's not the preacher's job to tell everybody that his sermon is interesting. They get to be the judge of that. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for our chance to gather together for the fellowship of the saints, for the truth of the word, for eternal things that we can believe and trust and hold on to and stand firm in because we know that those things will never let us down because you'll never let us down and you've revealed these truths. And help us learn what we need to from Acts today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Acts 17. We are now into, a, I love this part of Acts. We're in Acts 17. I'm, I already mentioned a little bit of this, but I'm going to do a little review to start with because I've got something I found digging through some of uh, some old coins and stuff that I had gotten from my dad. So the first thing is a slide from ancient of an artifact. I may have shown you this before. This is not mine. This is um, uh, one that I got from my slides from Acts that I've been showing you that I bought. Okay. Uh, the, the, let me read the, what I have for notes that came with this slide. It says, um, Brutus, by the way, is what that says in Latin right there. Brutus. Okay, the lictor, the Greek would be rabukos, was an office who served the magistrate and executed sentences on offenders. This coin from Rome depicts Council L. Junius Brutus walking between two lictors with axes. Now, if you look, see the right there, the point of that was an axe. You see that? So you have a bundle of rods. I already told you about the bundle of rods. Okay. A bundle like that would be fascies. fascies. And the rods were used to beat people. Paul and Silas had been beaten with rods, which was a Roman punishment, which is what they uh, accused them of doing, even though they were citizens. So then that scared the Roman officials, if you remember. And so this, I think I maybe showed you. And so here's your bundle. There's the axe head. This guy has a bundle. Brutus is between them. With fasces over their shoulders. Walking in front of them is an ascensus, a member of the Roman Light Infantry. This image comes from Yale University Public Domain. So we can show that one if we want. So do you see what I mean there by the bundle of rods? The axe, bundle of rods. Uh, and so that was uh, ro- during the first, during the Roman Empire. And it would be similar to the time of what happened in Acts. Now let me show you something I own. I found and I, I used some photography and editing and I made a slide of it. I'm kind of excited about this. I wonder why my, my dad gave me this decades ago and I threw it in a box and I found it here the last week or two, and I made a slide out of it. This here, see, it says 1940. See that? So this is a 1940 coin from Italy, Italia, and pictured here is Mussolini. Okay? So here on the coin is this bundle, and there's an axe head. There's the fascists. See, Mussolini was fascist. And so the bundle of rods, fasci, is on the 1940 coin, and they had an axe with it. So they beat you, and if you're really bad, they used the axe to execute you. But so I showed you, I'm showing you here, that that's the same thing they had back during the Roman Empire. But I'm going to show you even more. All right. Um, part of God's providence, my dad gave me this coin 40 years ago. 
If you look at the coin, we have here an M. I'm not sure what the E means, but the M is a Roman, is a Roman numeral for uh, a thousand years, a thousand. It's the highest one they have. So here's a thousand, and then there's three. So Mussolini and Hitler were enacting what they called the Third Reich. Okay, so here you have fascism going all the way back to ancient Rome, thousand years, and a three with Mussolini's picture. So I decided to do some research. And I think it might be of interest to us. And I wrote uh, some of my own notes here. The front side has fasces, bundle of wooden rods, the date 1940. The X part is there as is in the old Roman coin. It was the power to execute troublemakers. So we will beat you into submission. And if that doesn't work, we'll kill you. Mussolini. Now, the back side has M3. I'm, I'm reading my own notes which likely signifies the third millennium. The Reich is supposed to be a millennium. So I did some more research. The first Reich was considered by German Nazis to be the Holy Roman Empire. Okay, and the Nazis dated the Holy Roman Empire from 800 A.D., to 1806. That was their version of the of the of that of the first Reich. And as we found out from um, Musser's book of Nazi Oaks, Hitler was an ally of Mussolini because he had visions of creating a millennium with him ruling from Rome. And so that's why he needed Rome. He was fascinated with Rome. He wanted that to be part of his Third Reich. So the First Reich, according to their thinking, was 800 A.D. to 1806. Now, why they came up with that probably had something to do with the Germanic people. Recently, I researched a book I was going to refute, but then decided to at least delay that project. But there is a a post-millennial type guy who wants to institute Christendom and he claimed that the good role model for Christendom and this is very common with post-millennialism they want to have a new millennium with America being the headquarters all right well this guy said Christendom's role model was from 500 to 1500 which would be their dating of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, this was a reform guy. All right? So why would somebody reformed want a millennium like the one from 500 to 1500, which I would consider the Dark Ages? I was going to say, it wasn't exactly a great time in history. No, it was awful. Everything about it was bad. Illiteracy, disease... But see, the dream, and I think it goes back to the Tower of Babel, is that we're going to create a millennium, and we're going to be ruling without God. So uh, 500 to 1500, well, the Nazis said 800 to 1800. And I think it's because of the Germanic idea. So what's the second Reich? I'm going to tell you. (laughs) The Second Reich actually didn't go a thousand years, nor did the Third, for that matter. The Second Reich, according to the Volkisch, the Germanic ideal of Hitler, the Second Reich was from 1871 to 1918. So they claimed... So there was one from 800 to 1806, and then from 1871 to 1918, supposedly was the Second Reich. And that would have been ruled over by the, the Germanic people 
ending with Kaiser Wilhelm and ended by the defeat of Germany in World War One. Okay, so Kaiser Wilhelm was, was what, trying to create a Reich, but they were defeated. So it didn't go a thousand years, it only went um, like 50 or whatever, whatever you got there, 57, just a quick, no, 47, 47 years. Now, the Third Reich went from 1933 to 1945. So here's your Third Reich, 1,000, and here's your third. Well, and that was ended by the defeat by the Allies. Italy and Benito Mussolini, whose image is on the coin, were part of the Third Reich, and Hitler wanted to create a new Roman Empire, and it was to be the third millennium, the Third Reich. So now you know. And that's all I had time to kind of get together, but uh, I have a picture of my grandfather, Fred Soppy, my mother's dad, and, and Grandpa Soppy and I spent a lot of time together on the farm. It was his farm that my dad was farming. And he was a World War I veteran, and I have a picture of him coming home from World War I. But he was from Ger his dad came over here from Germany. And then they were sent back to battle who? The Germans. And in World War I, if you were from Germanic background, like my f grandpa Fred Zoppi was, he wouldn't let him be part of the infantry. They wouldn't let him because they didn't want to make Germans be shooting their own brothers or cousins or whatever. So he was a truck driver and it probably saved his life because that was such a horrible, brutal war. So Grandpa Fred came back alive uh, from World War I. And the story my dad told me was that Grandpa Fred was one of the best marksmen in the, that they had when they were training the soldiers. But he was, because he was German, he didn't, wasn't sent to kill Germans. One more story on that. My mom told me recently uh, that the reason the Sapis, her relatives left Germany in the late 19th century because they didn't want to go to war. The Germanic people were so warlike, they just didn't want any more wars. They didn't want to, they, didn't, they could see these stirrings going on. And they moved to Illinois and then they ended up in Iowa where they were farmers. Now, when I did the research about this coin that I had forgotten I even had until a few weeks ago, I found it. I, did, I remember my dad giving me this coin. Um, and he's a World War II vet. The time that my mom's relatives left Germany, the late 19th century, would have been exactly about the time, 1871, thereabouts, when this fervor for the Second Reich was taking hold. They saw it coming and they left. So there I'm giving you a little bit of my family history and a little bit of history that ties us back to the Bible because these things keep coming back, don't they? Okay, so there was the fascists. There's the fascist Mussolini. And that brings us to Paul and Silas. All right, they've been, there's my little history lesson. Now, um, they'd been beaten with fascist rods by the lictors the rod carriers, carriers. As you remember from last time, Paul was a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens were exempt from that kind of beating without a due process trial. And so therefore, the city officials were in trouble, and they wanted to get these guys out of town because they don't want any more trouble. All right. Now, when they had traveled through Acts 17.1, we're now we're in Acts 17, and Amphipolis, and Apollona, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So this was a journey of about 106 miles. Those with Paul included Silas, as we'll see in verse 17.4, and Timothy, as we'll see in Acts 17.14. 
And this was typical that Paul would first preach in synagogues. Why? Well, he believed, remember the commission in Acts was that the gospel should be preached first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most parts of the world. And they always went to the Jews who had the scriptures and would have more of a common understanding that there's such a thing as a Messiah and what the promises were given to the patriarchs. So they started there. Now, a little bit of historical material here. I have to read it on this slide, and I'll show, it, show you some other slides. Thessalonica was situated the northeastern end of the Thermaic Gulf at the foot of the Chortiatus Mountains, now called Mount Kisos. The city was founded by the Macedonian king Cassandros in 315 B.C. You know, this is a lot of material. I need to get into some scripture, so I'm going to just save this. I can print it for anybody interested. But the main point is that this is just rock-solid history, archaeology, data, details. The Bible is not some fairy tale. It's not just religious myth. It's cold, sober history. And it can be verified. These places are still there. Now let me show you a little bit of that. Here is our travel. So they were in Philippi. Remember, that's where they met, where Lydia was converted. Verse 40 ended with Lydia. And then Amphipolis was, is right here. And then you go down to, I can read that. What does it say? Apollyon? Yep, there it is. Okay, so that's where they went. And they go by the Via Ignatia between Philippi Thessalonica. Here's one note. We've said it before, but there's new people. I want to make sure we all get this. One of the things that in God's providence was the case was what is called Pax Romana. The Romans, for all their vices, had a very efficient system. They had uh, peace and safety enough so that people could travel without being killed by bands of uh, criminals. They had an efficient road system that would make it possible to travel so far. 106 miles would have been impossible if you just had to go through barren territory that had never been civilized. They had the Via Ignatia. And they had a system of government which included appealing decisions of courts and that helped Paul end up in Rome where he preached the gospel. He appealed to civil authorities again and again. And so they ended up here eventually in Thessalonica. So here I got this out of my logo software. It's probably a little harder to see. So here's uh, Philippi Aphipolis, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, and then all the way down to Athens. So that's significant travel from 2,000 years ago. That's a lot of travel. Thessalonica remains a significant city to this very day. A lot of the places have not been excavated because the modern city is right there still functioning and you can't tear down functioning buildings to go see what's underneath them. They build on top of the old. But there's a few spots of excavation and I'll show you what they are. Here's the city wall of Amphipolis and this goes all the way back to the 5th century B.C. So things lasted a long time when they're made out of stones. It's still there thousands of years later. So um, this was an excavated site, excavated in 1956. Um, I think I've told you this before, but I'll make the point again. The, we love truth 
an objective reality. And back in the 19th century, it was common to poo-poo the entire Bible as being myth. Because rationalism said, there's no miracles, there can be no resurrection, nobody can do any of these things, and the Bible is just full of myths. The places don't exist, the things don't exist. They talked about angels and demons and, and deities and the, the ancient flood, all this stuff. It's all myth. Well, what happened was enough um, political stability came to basically to Turkey and then to the uh, Israel area before 1948 that excavations were possible and archaeologists were safe enough to spend their time digging and learning and finding out what was going on. And we ended up with the Dead Sea Scrolls, all these excavations. And I read one time many decades ago, every time a shovel went into the ground, a number of li another liberal theory was overturned. And this became so profound that liberalism dumped their claim that the Bible was all mythology and no modern people would ever believe myths anyhow. And what they did after they dumped objective reality, because they had lost that battle, was they went over into the mystical realm themselves. So liberalism went from denying miracles and denying objective reality that's laid out in the Bible, turned out that all the ancient people believed there was a flood. Was it just Christians or, or Jews, and Jews and Christians? It turned out that these things, places are there, and the people were correct, the dates are correct, the place, everything's correct. The Bible was true. So how do we deal with these conservative Christians now? Aha, we got the idea. We'll say objective reality itself is not important. Oops, I got a mic cable changing my slides here. Well, here, you can look at that one while I talk. Okay, so then this one is, uh, this, uh, it says here, little has been uncovered in ancient Thessalonica because the modern city of Thessalonica sits atop the remains. Further excavations and restorations have been undertaken in recent years, and soon more of the ancient city will be open to viewing. The area pictured above, as here, was formerly a bus station. When it was moved in 1962, excavations at the site revealed this first or second century A.D. Roman Forum. Excavation found remains of a bathhouse and coin mint dating to the first century A.D. below the pavement. So here's at the time a Roman Forum like where the apostles actually walked and talked and preached. Okay, so it's all real. So what are we going to do with the claims of conservative Christians now that all our liberal theories got thrown out the window? By the way, in 1960, in rural Iowa, the older pastors I had still believed in liberal theories. My pastors said there were no miracles, and the Bible is mythical stories, they were supposed to inspire us to be better people. I never was inspired by lies and myths. Okay. Um, now, um, you know what they've done now? What the liberals have done? They've gone to Eastern religion. They've gone to their own mythology. They've gone to German romantic idealistic philosophy. Everything's evolving toward deity. We're all heading toward a future heaven on earth without any judgment. Uh, you had emergent. I wrote a whole book about their theories. Uh, moral and spiritual evolution. And, and so on. So the liberals have gone over to mythology and embraced it as the new reality. 
because they lost a battle in regard to objective reality. But sadly, the evangelicals want to join the liberals in their embrace of Eastern religion. And I've got book after book after book published by evangelicals promoting mystical meditation and so on and so forth. And I've written a lot about that. Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, uh, so many of these. And, uh, and, here's, and here's what I'm saying right now is this. Don't give up objective truth. Believe this. Objective reality is your friend. The truth is your friend. You go somewhere else, you go into an altered state, you're going into the realm of the demons and it's really ugly there. Don't go there. People that got delivered out of it are very, very thankful. Stay grounded in objective reality. The Bible is grounded in objective reality. Real events, real miracles, real Messiah, real places, real times. It's all true. Yes. Go ahead. We had uh, postmodernism. Would you say now that we're in a different period where that objective truth that's staring you right in the face, you, you see with your eyes, you hear with your ears, and yet people say that's not what you're seeing, that's not what you're hearing. Right, they're doubting everything. Uh, well, if you just look at the beginning of First John, what did John say? Yeah, no, it says, well, well, here, I'm going to look it up. I got a Bible here. Turn to 1 John 1. No, so I want to, we'll look at this. Here's another place, an ancient synagogue, like the ones where Jesus taught and like the ones where Paul Silas went. 1 John 1, 1 through 3 is what I want to cite here. I'll go ahead and do it. Yeah, you got it. What was from the beginning? What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen with our... Look at this. What we've heard. Seen with our eyes. Observed. Touched with our hands. Concerning the word of life. Talking about Christ. Remember Thomas? After he touched and saw... My Lord and my God. We're not teaching a mystical Jesus. We're not teaching the cosmic Christ. We're teaching the objective, virgin-born Son of God who lived in time and space, real history, and really died and was really raised on the third day. That life was revealed, okay? So revelation isn't a mystical impression in your mind. It's, the, it's what has been revealed through the person of Christ, the teaching of his apostles, eyewitnesses like John. And we have seen it. Notice that? This life was revealed and we have seen it. And, and then he says... And this we testify. Testify is what someone would do in a court of law. When the truth is being sought, we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father revealed to her, to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. And so it's based on objective reality, yes. Isn't that so nice that we get to serve a God who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. That, it just, every time I get discouraged or get down in the dumps, I serve a God who is the way, the truth, and the life. When we hear lies all day long, you turn on the TV and you get lies. Nothing but lies. We need the truth. You know, uh, uh, praise God for the objective truth. It's so, so sad that so much, so many churches jettisoned the objective truth, thinking that it was going to be overturned by science just about the time archaeology 
prove that these things really were true. They said there were no pilot. Then they found Pilate's name, now two different places, and so on. So don't believe the liberal theories, believe the truth. So here we have uh, a synagogue that dates from later than the time of the, uh, of the biblical writings, but yet it's nevertheless uh, typical of what would be there. Uh, it had been reconstructed. This synagogue, it says, provides a good idea of the size and layout of a synagogue. The structure with steps visible here at the far end of the building is the Torah shrine or bima. That's that at the end. That's, there it is, Torah shrine bima. You notice upstairs, we meet in a synagogue. That's what that's supposed to be. Torah is at the center. The structure with steps visible here at the far end of the building is the Shatar Shrine. So uh, this is located at Golan Heights of Israel. There we go. So there's the place, and now we see Paul. Acts 17, 2 and 3. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining, notice this, reasoned, explaining, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, which would mean the Messiah, the son of David, Messiah. So we want to learn some things here. What was going on? Paul didn't go in there and tell them, you need to learn how to meditate so you can shut down your mind and get into your alpha state or whatever it's supposed to be. And once you do the work, do the work, do the work, do the work, eventually you'll get your mind cleared out and the cosmic Christ and you will become one. He didn't say that, did he? He actually used cognitive words, ideas, reason, evidence, proving, explaining, objectively. I tell people to contact me who see an article I wrote because they, they've been to all these curse breakers and deliverance counselors and only gotten worse. And I say to them, objective reality is your friend. Altered states is where you get beat up and deceived. Stay in the real world. That's what I tell them. Stay in the real world. Paul back there, uh, Carly, I, toward the back, there's somebody. Now, this word, dialogomai, dia, dia, dia dia that's a deponent uh, verb, means to present intelligent discourse. Present intelligent discourse. So he was there to prove with intelligent discourse the person and work of Christ. Reasoning. Yes, Brother Paul. We think, when we think of the scriptures, we think what we can hold in our hand. Back then, the scriptures perhaps were the Torah. Would that have been it? There it is. Right. And therefore, he couldn't carry it around. Perhaps is why he started at the synagogue, because there was the scriptures. There was the Torah. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to that, and then we'll come back here. So they start with the Torah, or Tanakh, they probably had the whole, they would want to have Tanakh if they could. There we go. Now remember last week, remind me to go back to that previous slide, okay? But here's, this is um, more recent, but it shows you a Torah scroll. Do you see how they have that with the two poles there? They're here and here. They're like handles. See how that guy has those? How would you find something on those? You, you roll them and spin them. I mentioned to you last time, when we bought this building, 
in 19 or 2006, we moved in here. We had like a six month overlap before we got in. And there was a synagogue meeting here, and I'm right in this area over here. And they invited me as the pastor of the church that was buying their building to come and see how they do their Torah service. So I did. And they had these scroll. They brought out the scroll, which they consider to be sacred. And uh, it is in one sense, but it isn't because of the object, just because of the words that are on there. There's a difference between worshiping an object and understanding the words. Okay? And, but they had, they also honor the elderly, very much so. I wonder if America is the main com- country that doesn't do that. If you just watch our culture, everybody, if you want to insult somebody, you call them old. Isn't that right? Yeah. And in their own, if you're going to lie, you're going to lie that you're younger than you are. But it's not so in the Jewish culture. They're on a, they have absolutely, whoever was the oldest was the most honorable. Right? When we bought this place, the group I was with in 2005, 2006, as we worked on that, signing the final papers, we sat right over here, and they brought the oldest member of their synagogue to be part of the signing. And the rabbi explained to us, we brought our oldest member to show you honor, that we value you, and we are, we, we are honored to make this deal with you. That's why they brought the oldest one. So I think there's something good about honoring the elderly. America's not going to do that. America, generally, tend to believe that elderly means victim. And you get to have, if you live long enough, you get to have victim status. But um, I don't want victim status. I'm not interested in being a victim. I'd rather be a victor. Now, when I came, they, they had this out, and the reading was from some passage. I can't remember which passage they were going to read. And so they, they spin it, and they could do it pretty quickly. And they had the eldest, one of the oldest people there who knew Hebrew watching this. They, the, the reading was somewhere, and they spin it. Nope. Nope. There it is. And they'd go back a little bit. There we go. Now we're getting into the right spot. And then they'd read it right off the Torah scroll. And then after the reading, they rolled it together closely and carried it around so people could touch it. Because that's how much the Torah meant. So that's why they'd have an exalted place for their Torah. But in that kind of a context, and some of these things don't change for thousands of years. Okay? They wanted to be like they were way back. So so. Paul, earlier, and I want to go back eventually to Jesus here. Paul comes in, and the Torah scrolls are out. And he is going to say, do you want to know what these scrolls that you love and honor are saying about Messiah? Do you want to know the fact that the very one you've been reading about your entire lives and your ancestors' lives actually came in recent history and he was born in Bethlehem. I'm just reconstructing what we know to be true from Luke Acts and that he's the son of David and the prophets prophesied about him from the days of John the Baptist even before that Zacharias prophesied Do you want to know that this Jesus went into the synagogue in Nazareth and there declared from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, that he was fulfilling that prophecy? We see here we have an echo. This verse, echo, is an echo of Luke 4, 18 in Luke Acts. Luke is a brilliant, brilliant writer, and he knew the Greek well. So what happens here is an echo of what happened in Luke chapter 4. 
I got 20 minutes. I want to be able to establish that. So I'm going to stay focused. Because Jesus did that. Jesus came into one of the services. Jesus read from the Torah or Tanakh, more, more specifically, because he was into prophets. And he said, today this is fulfilled in your ears. Here, Paul said that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. So he probably went to the suffering servant part of Isaiah. And uh, notice he reasoned. Dia Legomai is used 13 times in the New Testament. Ten of the 13 are in Acts. So this is thematic by Luke. It's used more by Luke than anybody else. And it means to present intelligent discourse. Thematic in Luke. Proving, proving, proving the facts. Now, let me address that. I've been told by critics, people, we live in a postmodern generation. Facts don't convince anybody of anything. You've got to give them an experience. Okay? If they have enough pr- profound experiences, then they'll want to be Christian. But experience doesn't prove anything because all religions offer experiences. Metaphysical impressions or whatever they may be. What we want to know is what did Christ ordain should be done? And what did Christ do? In Matthew 7, how do you build on a rock? You hear those words of his, believe them and obey them and live that way. So, the next word here, dianoigo, means to open completely. And what was being opened is the meaning of the scripture. And uh, that word is used eight times in the New Testament, seven in Luke-Acts. So these are thematic in Luke-Acts, reasoned and explaining. Now, that was used previously... Um, well, let's look at some previous uses of this opening. Turn to Luke twenty-four thirty-one. A lot of what happens in Acts is echoed in Jesus's echoes of Jesus's post-resurrection appearances in Luke twenty-four. I want our hearts to burn like theirs did when they heard the scriptures taught that we have such a love for the truth that we hunger to learn and to grow. Luke 24, 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. So that was supernatural. But their eyes were opened. Here's our word. Now, look at Luke 24, 45 while you're there in Luke 24. I'm just looking at uses of this word opened. To open completely. It says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Let me comment on that. Luke 24, 45. What does that mean? Does it mean that the scriptures started meaning something new? That they never meant before? Or... Does it mean now they, under, they understand what the scriptures always meant? Which is it? It's the latter. Oh, that's what it always said. I remember when my mind was opened by God and my conversion. What it was open to was stuff I'd heard before, but I thought it was foolishness. Oh, Jesus is real. He really did rise from the dead. He really did ascend to heaven. You know what really struck me when my mind was opened? That hell was real. That, that, 
I knew that in a millisecond before I used to laugh about it. I used to say when I was a young preacher, hell is the most talked about place ever deemed not to exist. People tell each other to go there, but they don't think there's a there there. But I knew it was real when my mind was open. And I knew that if I didn't repent and come to Christ, that's where I'd end up. I knew all of that. So this is very real. So the fact that God has to do the work of the opening doesn't mean we don't do the work of reasoning and explaining. Luke is presenting this to us as good and normative and right. Paul is doing what Jesus did earlier. So when we teach the scriptures, dear saints, we need to do so clearly, reasonably, logically, and bring forth the meaning and applications that would be demanded by the meaning. Now, necessary, here's another word, thematic in Luke Acts. Necessary. I have it in purple. Necessary is the word day. Delta, Epsilon, Iota, day. And it's meaning usually in Luke Acts is a divine necessity. God is the one who made this necessary. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Does anybody want to discuss that? Why was it necessary? For Christ to suffer. Yes, Paul or Eric, either one. I would say because of our sin, because we were receiving wrath and uh, just uh, our just desserts if we uh, appeared before God uh, without any intermediary or anything like that. So would you say that his suffering was substitutionary? Absolutely. Eric, you have anything different to say about it? Go ahead. Yeah, actually, I agree with, I think it's a bunch of things, but one thing that has struck me, and maybe I'm just kind (laughs) of, is the covenants that God ordained. The blood covenant. All these covenants, and that blood and death, that's the way God designed it. Yeah, it doesn't say without the remission of, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Right, Uh, so God's not not going to violate his covenants. Yeah. Remember when, uh, when, uh, Abram was bringing his son up to sacrifice him. He said, here, Jessica's the one. He said, God will provide? Yes. Okay, so I'm seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Good. um, Four and five in here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Very good reading. That's very much worthy of a cup of coffee. Yes, please. Oh, of course, this is, this is brilliant. All of this. <laughs> yeah. The Word of God. No, it's just that we know that He did everything. Creation, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. He did it for His glory. I think we need to keep that in mind. He did it for His glory. Yeah. And I think that suffering is to reveal himself, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and his righteousness. I mean, Romans 1, 16 and 17, and, and, um, for we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. In this, the righteousness of God is revealed. He did it to reveal himself for his glory. Yeah. He paid what price we could not pay. Praise God. Bob. So good readings, good readings all around. Good reading. Oh, another good reading, I hope. I, it was also for the fulfillment of Scripture because Jesus often said, you know, um, uh, suffer this now so that Scripture can be fulfilled. Yeah, and it, it says in the Bible that Scripture cannot be broken. So the Jews had that idea, 
And so Paul started with people who would be conversant with the facts of what he's talking about. And that's why I went to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Now, um, Luke 24, 7. This was, Luke 24, 7 was angels speaking to the ladies who came to the tomb. Luke 24, 7. That the Son of Man must be delivered, there's our word must, day, into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise. Angels to the ladies from the ESV. That the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So much is in Luke about this. Remember they were taunting him? They were, they were, they were mocking him? If you're the Christ, save yourself and save us. Do something. And there was a divine necessity that he would suffer. You see, that was an apologetic issue with the Jews. If he's the Messiah, why didn't he defeat the Romans? Why isn't he on the throne? David is the king. He was going to rule over a kingdom of peace. And you're telling us that our Messiah was mocked, scourged, bled, suffered, died a shameful death, cursed of God, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And you're telling us that that's our king, our Messiah? And Paul is saying, yes, and I'm going to prove it from Scripture. They gravitated to the conquering king, but Jesus first came as a suffering savior. The kingship comes later. Yes. Not only that, Bob, but I don't know the scripture, but you would know. Wasn't it pleasing to God? Oh, yes. It was was pleasing to Christ. He was pleased to crush him. That's also in Isaiah, I believe. Good one. All right. So God is pleased to do these things this way. So what did Jesus say on the road to Emmaus about necessity, day, divine necessity? Luke 24, 26. I'll read this one. Was it not necessary that the Christ, Christos means anointed one, should suffer these things and enter into glory? Jesus, resurrected, tells them, was it not necessary for himself, the Christ, to suffer and enter into glory? Why is it necessary? Because God ordained that's how it would be. The word of God cannot be broken. My, my comments here. Paul went into the synagogue and focused on interpreting Messianic scripture. The long form of this is found in Luke's account of Paul's preaching in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch. Acts 13 16 through 41. So if you want to understand how Luke is writing, in Acts 13, you have the big long sermon with details. Later, he just gives this, assuming the readers would already know the details from Acts 13. So if you're interested in more details about how Paul preached in synagogues, go read Acts 13, 16 through 41, which we won't do today. Luke's readers can fill in the rest by going back to that passage. Does that make sense? It's just a good device. You can't keep, there's only so long amount of material and time he's got to write down. Dr. Schnabel says, Paul's letter to the Thessalonian believers and his reverence to the recurring support that he received 
from the Philippian believers while in Thessalonica, Philippians 4.16, indicate that he spent more than three weeks in the city. So he spent quite a bit of time teaching, preaching about Christ, and proving these things from Scripture. Now, one more thing I want to answer. Raise the question and answer it. The question would be, if it's a work of God to open people's minds to the truth of Christ, then why go through all this trouble of reasoning and explaining and citing so many scriptures? It's going to be a work of God anyhow. Why not just sit back and wait, let God save people, and we don't have to do any work? Go ahead, we'll let Paul uh, talk about that. <laughs> I'm thinking that, yes, is indeed God granting this widening of our minds, uh, of the conversion, repentance, the whole thing. It's possible that um, he's using you to lay the, the foundation, the groundwork, to create dissatisfaction so that God can fill in the gaps, perhaps. Yeah, well, we need, he uses means, okay? The scriptures are the groundwork. Uh, I think Luther's dictum is a biblical one. Luther's, one of his favorite sayings was, the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. I'll be pre- soon preaching on the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Okay? The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. The scriptures are telling us the very word of God. The reading and preaching of the scripture, the sword of the spirit is called the rhema of God. Rhema meaning mostly spoken word. So the preaching of the word of God is the means by which God brings conviction to the lost, encouragement to the saved, and growth in sanctification. Conversions and spiritual growth are the fruit of the word being taught logically, clearly, and fully. Scholarship is good. One of the sorry effects of an overreaction to rationalism was the anti-scholastic bias that took hold in a lot of evangelicalism. No, scholarship is not our enemy, it's our friend. Knowing what really is is not going to lead us away from Christ because we're studying what God did and what God said in his objective truth. So um, I think later I'll, I'll show the echo all the way back into Luke. One of the themes in Luke Acts is this. If you go back to Luke, starting in Luke 9.51, Jesus set his face like flint, which is an allusion to the Old Testament, and he's on his way to Jerusalem. A huge section of Luke was Jesus going to Jerusalem to be rejected. All right? There's a little preview of that when he was rejected in his old synagogue, his hometown of Nazareth, Luke 4. In Acts, Paul has a similar role, though he's obviously can't die for anybody's sins. That's already been done once for all. But Paul, the messenger of Christ, is also headed toward Jerusalem. When he takes up the collection and they're on their way back and they go to Ephesus, Agabus warns what will happen if he goes there. So Paul goes to Jerusalem to be rejected. Jesus went to Jerusalem to be rejected. Jesus went into a synagogue and proved from scriptures who he was, Paul goes into synagogues and proves the scriptures who Jesus is. So there's an echo going on. If you want an echo of this, go look at, I think we're going to do this next week, go to Luke 4 and see what happened with Jesus where he did the same thing. Now, do we have any more quick slides here? Oh, I showed you the Torah school. Okay. Okay, here's what's coming up. Preview. Lots of goodies. 
This is Jason Moore. Persecution, more of this. All right, so we're the, there's the Taurus coral that I looked at. Actually, when I look at, next week we'll go here back to the Taurus scroll. We'll start here with the Taurus scroll. And I'm going to have us all go to Luke 4. So you want some homework? Study Luke 4, 16 through 21. And go beyond that in your reading to the end of that narrative where they want to throw Jesus off a cliff. All right? And then we're going to see the echo. Luke is a brilliant writer. Reviews and previews. Echoes. Foreshadowings. And it all comes together gloriously. Oh, do I love Luke Acts. What a privilege to teach it. So go back to Luke 4, and next week we'll start with the Torah scroll slide. And Eric alluded to this last week. Did this, hand, was it handed to him as the reading of the day, and it turns out he's the one reading the verse about him, or did he turn to it? We don't know, but we can talk about that. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. Thank you for the fellowship of the saints, the truth of the gospel, and that we're safe in you. Bring peace and comfort to the hearts of all of us as we live in very troubling and trying times. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.